Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, A Distracted Devotion. The story of Jacob is one of the most profound pictures of the struggle that takes place within every one of us that desires to follow after God. You see, all too often we take Jacob's useless approach of grabbing the heel of things that we think will help us obtain the blessing of God. However, we must, as Jacob eventually did, let go of Esau's heel of the flesh and grab hold of God himself. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. You've given us so much. The most overlooked father on Father's Day is you. And so, Lord, we desire more than anything to bring glory to your name. We desire you to be satisfied, you to smile, you to have pleasure. And you've told us how you get it. You get that great pleasure and that great delight when we lift high the name of Jesus Christ. When we bow our name and declare that he is Lord, it is to the glory of God the Father. And so that's what we do. We lift high Jesus. We bow our knee and we proclaim that Jesus is our master, our commander, our general, our Lord. And we will do his bidding. What the word says goes. And we declare at the very beginning of this semester that our Jesus rules this environment. He rules each of our individual lives. He rules our families and our marriages. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. And we declare that to the high heavens. We belong to Jesus Christ here. And may Jesus Christ feel welcomed. And may the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the very Holy Spirit of God, come and dwell here, move here, and have freedom here to do what God wants to do. Come, Jesus. Come and be glorified. Come and make yourself known unto our souls. May we see you more clearly than we've ever seen you before. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. You guys ready for your first message of an Ellerslie semester? Uh, let's kick it off. A distracted devotion. Uh, I know if any of you have ever heard me talk online, I'm always talking about my titles. Titles are a big deal to me, okay? And this is a Sandy title, so I can't criticize it. Sandy came up with a better title than I had, uh, which has happened more than a few times. Ben has come up with a few good titles, and I, sh- I think I give you credit when you, when, when you do it, don't I? I think I, uh, I, ha- I used one of Sandy's titles once and never gave her credit. Uh, Reckoning with Truth, that was a Sandy title. It's probably one of the most uh, impactive messages that we've ever had at Ellerslie, and I don't know that I ever mentioned that Sandy's the one that came up for it. I don't remember, but... Uh, uh, so thank you, Sandy. A distracted devotion. So if you don't like the title, hey, I wash my hands of it right now. <laughs> Actually, this is a very difficult title, a very difficult message to title. You see, the best title for this would be The Heel Grabber. And I tell you what, that is the most pitiful title. And so as a result, since that's the best title, it didn't leave me with a lot of options. I could have called it Jacob. That's not very attractive either. And so... A distracted devotion. You see, what this title indicates is that there's a devotion. It's a very real devotion, but it's a distracted devotion. It's off-center. It's not 
where it should be. There is a proper focus for our devotion. You have a passion. Some of you have been stirred and awakened by the living God. And yet, what you're doing with that devotion is not fruitful. It's actually frustrating. You're trying to figure out why your Christian life doesn't work. It's not because you're not sincere. Remember, A.W. Tozier says, sincerity doesn't keep you from hell. I was like, whoa, I don't like that statement. There's only one thing that keeps you from hell, if you want to look at it that way. It's truth. It's Jesus. Okay, so you have to have truth. Truth is what sets free. You can be sincerely desiring freedom from handcuffs, but if you don't have the key to get out of them, you're still there, even though you're sincerely desiring freedom from them. And so the key is truth, which is why the enemy deals in that realm. He wants to pervert and subvert. And so when the enemy sees devotion rising up within you, a desire to serve God, an awakening to the God reality, you know, because most, you know, most people on planet Earth are sleeping. They don't even see that there's a God. They don't want to see that there's a God. Yet, for some reason, you do. However, the enemy wants to take that passion, that awakening, and he wants to subvert it. He wants to pervert it. And he wants to direct it in a way that does not please God and destroys your life. And that's, isn't that a funny statement? To say you're hungry to serve God and that could actually, that very hunger, if misdirected, could cripple you. Not just you, cripple the world around you. You ever heard of a cult? Yeah. That's a perverted, subverted devotion. It is a wrongly directed application of givenness unto the things of the divine. So if we do not have a proper governance and direction for that which God is awakening, you know what? We could end up not just harming our own soul, our own marriages, our own families, but actually the people around us that we intend and actually desire to serve. That's what this is about. A distracted devotion. Jacob. I guess the Hebrew would be Jacob. Jacob. Isn't that nice? You guys are going to be very impressed with my Hebrew by the time uh, you graduate here. Uh, I have my own rendition of Hebrew. It's like Eric Hebrew. Uh, I need to get more of, was it Dwight that was teaching me how to do the <laughs> Maybe it's more like Hachab. I don't know. Is that right, Dwight? Where, what happened to Dwight? Right when I need him, he disappears. Uh, Jacob, the heel grabber. You know, that's what his name means. Who names their child the heel grabber? It's like you. Yeah, you're a heel grabber. That's actually his name. He was given that name. How in the world did he get that name? Well, I'll tell you. Just a second. But Jacob the heel grabber, one who takes hold of the heel. This is what his name means. A layer of snares. Oh, my precious little child, you're a layer of snares. And then squeeze his cheek. what, What a strange name. A supplanter, a deceiver. And so those of you that named your child Jacob, in honor of our great patriarch, you just know what you named your child. However, there's, there's something redeeming in this name. And that's what I want you to realize. We all, those of us that have been awakened by the grace of God, are first Jacobs. Jacob is merely one that has come forth out of the womb, but he's incorrect still. There is a correction that needs to take place in his soul. He's right in his desire and his devotion. He is. He has the right esteem. He esteems God. He esteems the birthright. He esteems the inheritance of his father Isaac. He wants it. And every single one of you would have to admit, well, you know what? He has good taste. Esau doesn't want it. His brother, by the way, his twin. 
Esau doesn't want it. Something's wrong with Esau. It says God hates Esau. And you go, how rude. God wouldn't hate Esau, would he? He hates what Esau symbolizes. Esau symbolizes self-sufficiency. I can do it on my own. He's the hairy hunter. He doesn't need God. He can go out and supply for himself. But Jacob is known as a plain man dwelling in tents. A little awkward description. And again, you named your child Jacob. You're like, you're a plain man dwelling in tents. You're one who lay, takes hold of the heel, a layer of snares, a supplanter, a deceiver, coochie-coo. Okay, it's a good name. Okay, and I know we have a few Jacobs in here that are like rustling in their seat right now going, how, how inappropriate to start out a semester by attacking me. However, you're going to realize I have a very high esteem for Jacob. What he represents is something I think every single one of us in here is going to get in his shoes without even trying. Because what we are at Ellerslie, if you could enunciate it very succinctly, is a whole bunch of Jacobs in search of a blessing. We just don't know where to get it. We're hungry for it. We want it. And so we're coming up to Esau, seeing him come in from the field hungry, and we're like, ah. I think if I could deceive, deceive him and lay a snare for him, I could get what I'm after. And guess what? It just doesn't work. You see, in the Oriental culture, which we will call the Hebrew in this, in this uh, context, out of the Oriental culture, it was the firstborn male that would receive the entirety of the inheritance from the father. And so guess what? There's twins inside of Rebecca's womb. Twins. And so they're jostling for position. They want to be first. And this is a symbol, and we'll go into this in great depth in this semester. It's a symbol of that which is inside of you, flesh and spirit. And the firstborn is the flesh. And we'll go into this, okay? I'm not going to teach on it today, but we'll go into this. The firstborn is always the flesh. Cain, Abel. Ishmael, Isaac. The first is always self-effort. It's always man's goodness. It's always man's ability. And it cannot stand before God. It does not please God. But the second one doesn't look the part. It's not impressive. A plain man dwelling in tents? Ah, a little awkward. We don't want to rest all our hopes on that. That that's going to carry on the seed and the line and the heritage of the Messiah. Plain man dwelling in tents. I hate to break it to you, God, but that guy's not very impressive. And neither are we. We're not the royalty of this world. We're not the ones that the world is looking at. You know, there's people all over the world, even today, that have a microphone stuck in front of their face and news cameras that want to know what they have to say on the matter. You'll notice that we don't have any news cameras here. No one cares. You know, the world out there, they do not really care what's happening in here, in this room today. And I, I, I'm not trying to be rude to you or to myself, but they don't care what we think on the matter either. And we've, it's been proven in our culture in America today, they don't care how we vote either. It's like we've lost our say. It's like, oh, you're one of those, the rabble. Yeah, I wish we could just somehow eliminate you from the earth. They don't care. In other words, you're a plain man dwelling in tents. And yet there's something that is stirred within you. Yet you're looking to grab a hold of something. And what do you grab a hold of? What is the first thing? that Jacob grabs a hold of. He grabs a hold of Esau. Esau's heel, to be very specific. Let's see if, we, if I actually... Oh, in Rebekah's womb, he's known as the heel grabber. And so here it is. 
And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment. So if you named your kid Esau, now you know what you're naming him, you know, hairy garment, red, all over hairy. It's just sort of an awkward description of a guy, too. And after that came his brother out, and, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. Well, there's your reason right there. He grabbed Esau's heel. What do you grab? When you're coming out of the spiritual womb, what's the first thing you grab a hold of to try and gain the position that you're after? You see, you're popping out of the spiritual womb. It's a new birth, and you're like, okay, I want to serve Jesus. I want to do this right. And so what do you grab a hold of? The flesh. And I'll explain what the flesh is in scriptural terms, but it's your own ability. It's your own capacity. It's your own wit, wisdom, willpower, discipline. If I pray enough, if I can come to church consistently, and if I can be loyal in this environment, if I can learn to speak good words. I mean, I've been you know, using foul language, but I'm going to correct that. And I'm not going to look at women the way I once did. I'm not going to do this. It's a whole list of how you're going to change yourself. It's a resolution for your Christian life. A new year's, in this case, a new birth resolution. I can do that. I'm going to please my God. I'm going to serve him. We grab a hold of the heel. And guess what our Father in heaven calls us? Hmm, Jacob. You see, you're rightly directed in your desire but you're wrong in how you're going to fulfill that desire. You want to please God. You honestly do. If I was going to have some measuring device that could go up against your soul and go, dee-dee, 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 and that dee-dee is going to measure the amount of sincerity and desire you have to serve God well. I mean, we could just go into this room and it's like off the charts. It's like, dee-dee, dee-dee, dee-dee. We have it here. There's a true desire. You wouldn't be here if there wasn't some dee-dee in your soul. Something is stirring within you. But what are you grabbing a hold of? Look at your hand, your spiritual hand. What have you been grabbing a hold of? You're caught red-handed, aren't you? You see, you didn't, but what you could say back is, well, I don't know what to grab, though. I want it. Well, that's what this message is about. The bowl of red stew. The layer of snares. Now you're starting to move forward in your Christian walk. You know, you grab the heel, but still, guess who was born first? The flesh still is the firstborn in your life. And it really stinks. And you're tired and sick of that flesh. You are disgusted with yourself because you esteem what is good. You esteem righteousness. You esteem purity. You esteem humility. And yet what's coming out of you? Anger, frustration, pride, arrogance, lust, deceit. Why, why is that there? I want to serve Jesus. I want to do this right. I want to be the vessel fit to bring forth his glory into this earth. And yet, if this earth was to examine me, they would see nothing more than a heel grabber, supplanter, deceiver. That's, that's the summation of your life. Now, you need to realize, Jacob starts out. He doesn't end this way. And so, he's an important picture of something to us. He's an important statement of one who has the right desire. So he's a layer of snares, which is part of his name, by the way. His name is prophetic. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. Where does Jacob think his, his passion or his desire can be satiated? 
Who does he think is holding the answers for him? He thinks Esau has it. So that's his problem. He thinks it's in the flesh. He thinks that just with enough of manly strength, he can gain that which Esau has. If he can just steal it from Esau, Esau has all the hair. How many of us guys think that too? It's like, oh, I didn't get any. I have one hair that goes, drink. <laughs> Esau got all of it. I need that hair. You don't need Esau's hair. That isn't what makes a godly man. E- Jacob is wrongly directed. And Jacob said, swear to me this day. And he swore unto him and sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Okay, now how many of you have been in this scene? You see, you're Jacob. You grab the heel, you lay the snare, and you're expecting to sort of dupe your flesh into obedience. You're going to sort of trick your flesh into finally coming into alignment with the kingdom pattern. You're going to be pure. I got you right where I want you, and guess what? You feel good for a week. In fact, some of you think you licked the flesh. You're like, a little grin on your face, like, I think I arrived. I got this whole Christianity thing figured out, and then (laughs) you trip. And then you're face in the mud afresh going, what? What's wrong? I have the birthright. He pledged to me. He swore it. Why don't I have it? Because you don't get what you're after from the flesh. Just a heads up. Usurping Isaac's blessing. This guy is not done. Why is he not done? Why are you not done? It's a good question. And wouldn't it be just fitting in this situation to say, hey, uh, Jacob, I think you're looking in the wrong direction. However, most of us don't know he's looking in the wrong direction. We're right there with him. And so we're saying, you know what? There's a blessing that's going to come from Isaac. Okay, I didn't get to be firstborn. Because if I was, everything would have gone well for me. I got the birthright, but it didn't satisfy me. Something's still not there. Something's missing. Aha! It's the blessing of Isaac. It's the blessing that would go to the firstborn, which I'm not. Aha! The conspiracy hatches within you. You are trying to figure out how to be good. You are attempting to conspire within this body how to be as God intends you to be. I can do this. I think I got it. I think I got it figured out. This is us, isn't it? You see, you're sincere. You want this. And you know what? This is a good thing that you're after. It really is. Do you think that desiring to be as God intends you to be is a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. However, you're not going to get it by supplanting and deceiving your father and grabbing what rightfully belongs to the flesh, usurping Isaac's blessing. And Rebecca took goodly raiment of her eldest son Esau, which were with her in the house. This is just sort of an awkward story at multiple levels. This whole story, you know, from the beginning of having a plain man dwelling in tents and a guy who's covered like a hairy garment, both of those things are a little strange. But this is extra strange. How hairy was this guy? Okay, now first of all, she takes some of his clothing, which were left in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she gave the savory meat and the bread, which Isaac is obviously, you know, not the most impressive guy in this story, too. I mean, he is duped in the most ridiculous way. Okay, first of all, Jacob comes in, doesn't even seem to hide his voice when he's coming in to act as Esau. He's wearing... Esau's clothes. Now, remember, Isaac is blind. Okay, if you haven't read this story before, Isaac, his father, is blind, and he's going to lay his hand upon his son and impart the blessing that is his as a patriarch 
in the line of the sea. This is a very important moment. And so Rebekah gives Jacob the clothing of Esau, and she gave him the savory meat and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau thy firstborn. I have done according as thou bid me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father and felt him and said, It wasn't, the, now I don't know if it says it in the story, but he was wearing like goat skin over his arms. That's why I say, How hairy. Was this guy? Could you imagine if your arms felt like goat? Uh, that's a goat. That's a goat. Well, that's pretty extreme heritage. Uh, and so I pray thee that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very near son Esau or not. And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. This whole thing is just rather odd. And it came to pass, as soon as Isaac had made an end of, ble of blessing Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. And Esau said, is not he rightly named Jacob? Well, I, uh, you're wondering what happened to the story. That's where the dot, dot, dots. This is just getting down to the point. Look at what Esau says. Is not he rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. However, how's Jacob doing? Just a quick assessment. You know, we could say, good job, Jacob. Well, you pulled it off. And God didn't like Esau anyways. I'm glad you got what was meant for him. However, what Jacob got did not satisfy him. You know that Jacob spends the next, I don't know what it was, 10 to 20 years in absolute misery? He's not a happy man. Things, though he might be blessed in a natural sense, and his, his, uh, his cattle are reproducing well, he's not a satisfied man. Something is still missing in his life. He esteemed what God had to give. He just didn't know how to get it. What defines a heel grabber? They see the God blessing, and they desperately want the God blessing. But they attempt to get it through the flesh, or self-effort, self-discipline, self-restraint. They are not men and women of faith, but men and women of self-effort and self-righteousness. They believe that something outside of Jesus saves them. They have clothed themselves in their own righteous work. Hey, but I grabbed his heel. I laid a snare for him, and I got his birthright. Hey, I got the blessing from Isaac. Aren't I fine? I've been laboring hard to be right and to have this blessing. Don't I have it? You don't have it because that's not where you get it from. You can be sincere but you can also be sincerely wrong. The legalist. What's the legalist? He, well, he's the heel grabber. That's what a legalist is. One who finds his confidence in man's means to accomplish God's ends rather than in God's means to accomplish God's ends. Where is your confidence lie? When it comes to the measurement of your soul as you arrive here at Ellerslie, and someone were to say, do you have confidence before the judgment seat? Do you? Where does your confidence lie? Could you imagine Jacob saying, well, it wasn't really my fault that I came out second. I actually tried. I grabbed his heel, and I did as good a job as possible. My mom noticed. She named me heel grabber. Okay, that should account for something. 
And then when I saw my brother coming in from the field, since he had the birthright that I felt should be mine, that I've been after this whole time, I laid a snare for him and duped him, and I got it. And then I got the blessing of Isaac. That should be sufficient. Is it? Is it sufficient? Jacob, in his own cunning and conniving, has whipped up a religious form. He has come up with his best attempts at trying to gain something that seems elusive. He's done a fairly good job. You have to admit it. He is rightly named. He's a deceiver. He's a supplanter. He's a heel grabber. He's a layer of snares. And many of us could fall into the same description. You see, we're working hard. No one could fault us for not trying. But what we're going after is not producing anything. Some common heels to grab. So if you've ever grabbed a heel, we're going to talk about it. Okay? Uh, by the way, yours truly, that means me, uh, has been known to grab some heels in my day. Okay? And it's very common. And even though you stop grabbing heels in your life, do you know that you can still have a strange allurement back to heels? And it's just, I don't know what it is about a heel that makes us want to grab it. But we want to shore things up. You see, having faith in Jesus Christ and that being sufficient to rescue us just seems a little skimpy at times. It's like, I think I want to bolster up my odds of getting in. And so if I could just sort of do this, do this, do this, in addition to that. I mean, come on. I mean, it's not that I don't think that that is right, because that's what the Bible says. But... If I grab this heel, this heel, and this heel at the same time, then maybe I'll have just sort of that extra insurance policy. So, some common heels to grab. Moral purity. If only I can keep my mind and heart without spot and blemish. If I could just guard my thoughts, because all those thoughts keep getting me in trouble. All my eyes keep wandering. If I could just maintain an inner purity. How many of us have doggedly decided... And made resolution in our life that if we could just be pure on the inside, we'd be fine before God. And the reason that God doesn't want to have anything to do with us is because we're not morally pure on the inside. It's an interesting thought process. Does God desire moral purity? Absolutely. But how do you get it? You see, if you are doggedly grabbing a hold of your flesh, saying you will submit, you will have a pure thought life, you will behave this way, you will not get angry, you will not be proud... Good luck. It's like trying to lasso a rhino. In other words, you get a hold on it, you feel really good while it's eating grass. You're like, I think I got it. And then, <laughs> Number two, external righteousness. You see, if only I wear this and don't wear that, do this and don't do that, then. See, the one thing that's going to be common in all these things is then. Because we have our little list. If we can do these certain things, and you know, some of us don't purposely set out to come to one of these. We're not thinking, oh, because none of us in our right mind are going to actually say, yeah, I'm, I believe that two is actually true. We live it out. We prove it with our behavior because we honestly think that if we dress properly, if we do this, don't do that, then we will be right with God. I want you to realize there's nothing wrong with dressing properly. I'm a big fan of it. There's things you shouldn't do, and there's things you should do, okay? That's clothing, in a nutshell. You need it, okay? You need enough of it, and you need to make sure the stuff you do have is sufficient, okay? And so, external righteousness, it's not that God doesn't care. He does. 
But how are you trying to get it? You see, if you go after moral purity by grabbing hold of the flesh, you're not going to get it. And if you go after external righteousness by grabbing hold of the flesh, you're not going to get it. It'll be a false rendition of it. Compassionate rescue. If only I do good to the poor, adopt the orphan, and visit the widow. Then! You see, so many of us do the good thing, and it's the right thing to do. Commissioned by the God of the universe to do it. However, is that your badge at the judgment day? When the judge comes up to us and says, what's your plea? Do we say, you should see how many kids I adopted. I helped this old lady across the street. Is that your righteousness? Where does your confidence lie? What are you grabbing a hold of? Dutiful attendance. If only I stay faithful in my church commitment, then. Sacramental acts. If only I get baptized in water and take Holy Communion, then. By the way, every single one of these things, it might not fit you, but every single one of these things I'm describing is what most modern Christians are stuck in. They wouldn't call themselves legalists. They wouldn't call themselves heel grabbers, but that's exactly what they are. They're grabbing something as their source of salvation other than the true source of salvation. They're putting their confidence and their stock in these things. They have a certain amount of stock, and they need to invest it somewhere. And so they're sticking it all on these things. And I want you to realize these things will not return. They will not produce and yield what you need. These will not get you to Jesus. These will not get you to the Father. Six, spiritual disciplines. If only I get a good prayer time and a solid study time in daily, then. Boy, this is a, this is a trip up for many of us. I mean, is God against a good study time and a good prayer time? No, it's an evidence that you are alive, that you want to spend time with your God. However, you know what a lot of us do? We put our confidence in our study time and in our prayer hours and how, and how much we're totaling up, and that's our confidence before the judgment seat. Look what I did. I have been studying nonstop for 30 years. I know the Bible. So does Satan. It's not knowing it that changes you. You can have a map to buried treasure. That doesn't mean you have the treasure. You must get in the map and obey it. You must follow it. You must find that treasure. That's all that matters. Ellerslie. That's a funny one to throw in, but a good way to start. If only I go to Ellerslie. Hear the teaching and linger in the atmosphere. Then! We can't save you. There is nothing we can do other than point you to the one that can. And that's what we're going to do. Where does your confidence lie on judgment day? Is your faith in what you do or in what he did? You might not fully understand that. I'll read it again. But if you don't fully understand this message, I don't want you to panic. One of our desires at Ellerslie is that in these next nine weeks, you would fully grasp the work of the cross. And that you would actually come to the place where you know that it is sufficient. And I want you to realize, when you understand that it's sufficient, it doesn't mean you become a moral anarchist. And you go spiraling off saying, hey, the cross is sufficient. I can live any way I want. It's the opposite effect. You actually dedicate your life. And you say, for the glory, take this. 
and you become his instrument. And guess what? Every single thing. Let me go back through this list. Moral purity. It's a result of what? Jesus being in you. You want to know who's morally pure? Not you. He is. And who wants to live inside of you and exert his life in and through you? The one who's morally pure, who's righteous. Jesus, who's compassionate. Jesus. But that isn't what saves us. That's the result of being transformed. When you come to Jesus, he comes to you. And he takes this body and then he uses it to do all the things that you were desiring or thinking may trigger this great effect out of heaven. But it's a byproduct of knowing Jesus. Is your faith in what you do? In other words, are you banking? Are you investing in what you do? Oh, you know what? I did this, and I did this, and I did this. That's sufficient. You know where I bank? You see that cross? That did it for me. I stare at that cross, and I say, that is the work That is it. Calvary. Where's your confidence? Where are you looking? Are you looking to your pile of good works? Are you looking to your attendance? Are you looking to your exertion of moral command? Or are you looking at the cross saying, that did it. He did it. I can't. He did. You learn to look at the cross and guess what? That cross changes you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. How were you saved? Were you saved by exerting your moral command, by discipline, grit, and hard work? It says, by grace. And we'll understand what grace is at Ellerslie. But it's the labor of God. It's the work of God. Grace is the cross. It is God, His work, on behalf of a people that cannot do it themselves. What are you saved by? You're saved by grace. How? By looking upon it. By saying that is what I need. Not all this other stuff. Esau does not have it. Turn away from Esau, Jacob. Get away from Esau. Stare at God. That is what will save you. Listen to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. By the way, I'm not just inventing this scripture to just conveniently fit with the message. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Who's the Son of Man? He's talking about Jesus. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What's the condition? You believe. Now, believe has become a rather funky concept in Christianity today where it means mental assent, like a true false test. Did Jesus Christ die on a cross? Oh, true. And everyone's like pats us on the back. That's not what belief is. Belief is not just knowing it to be true, but it's then reckoning it as true, taking it as true. I could leave a $20 bill on the stage here and say, that belongs to you. And someone later in the day could say, did Eric get, really give you a $20 bill? Oh, yeah, he did. True. But do you have it in your pocket? No, because you didn't take it. You have to reckon the 20. Then you have to present and yield yourself to the living God. If it, true, if it is true that he's your king, submit to him as a king. 
If it's true that he purchased your body with his blood, prove it. Do you believe it? If you do, what do you do? You yield up your body to him. And you say, this belongs to you. Whatever you want to do with it from this day forward, you decide. That's belief. And so when we look, I mean, this is a very fascinating illustration because it's going back in time to this thing that happened in the wilderness. When Moses and the Israelites were passing through the wilderness, people were doing some bad things. And God brought a whole bunch of serpents out, and they started biting the people, and the people started dying. The people cried out and repented, and they were like, hey, call out to God on our behalf and get this to stop. And so this is what God told Moses to do, to stop the snake bites and the effects of the snake bite, which, by the way, is a great picture of sin. To stop the effects of this snake bite, I want you to make a bronze serpent, and I want you to stick it up, and any one of the Israelites that looks upon it will be saved. They'll be healed. So what's, what's the qualifier for, for healing? Now, I'm not going to talk about what the, that bronze serpent is called the Nehushtan. I'm not going to go into what it means to be cursed and all that. We just don't have time. It's very fascinating. But I want you to follow me. That's a picture of Jesus. And that's even the, the picture that's given here. But what would an Israelite have to do? First of all, they would have to acknowledge their snake bit. You know, and that's a little embarrassing, to be honest, because that's a judgment, and to recognize that you're part of the problem is a humbling thing. I'm snake bit. I need help. I, I cannot heal myself. Boom! Right there. You are prepared to be saved. Right there. But what do you need to do? This is where it gets awkward. You need to go out of your way in front of all Israel. And you need to look and behold the serpent. You need to go out of your way and look upon it. You need to say, I believe that this is my only source of salvation because I cannot heal myself. I need this. And as crazy as it sounds, that that's going to heal me, I believe it does. There you go, right there. That's actually the parallel with John 3.16, which we have to admit, even though we usually isolate that to being one of those kiddo scriptures, is literally the centerpiece of what Jesus Christ did, the enunciation of it. The Greek legend of Achilles' heel. You guys ever heard of an Achilles' heel? It's a weak point. It's that one point where we're vulnerable. Well, listen to the legend. It's extremely fascinating. As Greek legend would have it, a little baby boy was born to the goddess Thetis. It was foretold that this little boy named Achilles would die young in battle. Oh, no. The goddess Thetis refused to accept this prophecy and contrived a way to bring Achilles to the river Styx to secure the magical protections of the wicked waters upon him. Grabbing him by his heel, of all places, she dipped his entire body into the dark river, thus clothing him with magical untouchability. But as Thetis held Achilles by the heel, his heel was not washed over by the magical waters. And thus, Achilles was unstoppable and invulnerable in every point upon his body but one. And thus, after surviving many great battles with incredible unstoppable prowess, one day a poisonous arrow lodged itself in his heel and killed him, just as had been prophesied. Okay, now you can say, what in the world does that have to do with anything? The legend unpacked. Your death is foretold. You're a young buck, and yet you're not too excited about it any more than Thetis is. You know what? You're doomed. You're sentenced. You're judged. There's a condemnation that lies over you. There's a foretelling, a prophecy over your life that says, goodbye, all gone, all done. You don't have hope. There is no hope. It's called the bad news. We just happen to usually start with the good news, and we don't understand the good news because we don't understand the bad. 
The bad news is that there is a statement over your life. It is a judgment. It is a a death sentence. Eternal separation. It's not just you being evaporated. There's very real gnashing of teeth involved in this one. Your death is foretold. And yet there is a refusal to accept this prophecy. Why did Thetis turn to the dark waters of the river Styx? Because she refused to accept it. And what do we do? I don't want that as my end. I don't want that. And so what do we turn to? The river Styx? Now, for those of you that don't know Greek mythology, which I wouldn't encourage you to read. This could be all the Greek mythology you ever need to know. The river Styx is what goes through Hades. It's the dark river. It's the one that has magical power, sure. But it can't save you. Look what it did to Achilles. It gave a false sense of salvation. A false sense of invulnerability. Don't fall for it. The river sticks can't save you. The heel is grabbed. A false power is trusted. But your end will come just as was foretold. Isn't that amazing? That's a great statement. Okay, so I'm not trying to teach you Greek mythology. Believe it or not, that might be the only thing you ever hear of Greek mythology from Eric Ludi. Dipped in the wrong river. Grabbing the heel. What is that? You're dipped in the wrong river. You're finding confidence in the wrong thing. You know that there's a river sticks, but you know in the Bible there's actually a river of God? It's very interesting, and ironically, you are supposed to be dipped in that river. Isn't that just an ironic twist on this whole thing? Which is why I had to go through the Greek mythology to show you the ironic twist. For as in Adam all die, as in the river Styx all die, even so in Christ, the river of God, all shall be made alive. There's a river of life that flows from the throne of God. It flows from the Father. Because he is so moved by love, he sends forth his rescuing river. But if you don't go and bask and bathe in that river and be swallowed up in what's called baptized in that river, then you will be vulnerable to the prophecy that is overhanging your life. Come to the river. Come and be immersed. Come and find yourself in Jesus, not in Adam. Adam is known as the old man. You know, an old man is always the father. Oh, yeah, my old man. Well, guess who your old man is? It's Adam. And when you pop out of your mother's womb, guess what? You're in Adam. It's like being in the river Styx. Okay, it's not a pleasant place to be. However, you can come up with all sorts of things. It's a magical river. No, it's in, I'm invulnerable. You're not invulnerable. It's a false sense of security. Don't fall for it. Achilles... Seemed invulnerable. You should hear the stories of this guy. He waxed valiant in fight. However, he was vulnerable. And your vulnerability will find you out. And he brought me through the waters. The waters were to the ankles. Again, he measured a thousand. This is it's called the heavenly temple in the book of Ezekiel. The temple has been measured out. And now there's this river that's flowing out from the throne, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of the life that Jesus Christ purchased on the cross. And so he measures out a thousand and brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and brought me through, and the waters were measured to the loins. After he measured a thousand, it was, and it was a river that I could not pass over. For the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. There's a false river, and there's a river of life. Make sure you're bathing 
in the right one. Make sure you're baptized and putting your confidence in the right one. When you guys understand baptism this semester, this message will shine for you. To understand that you have to choose where you're going to put your confidence. You know, you could be dipped, be held by the ankle and dipped into the river Styx. Are you going to put your confidence there? With your own efforts of salvation, are you going to put your, your confidence there? Or are you simply going to say, my life is turned over from this day forward. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Take my life and let it be. Consecrate it unto thee. Baptize me unto death. That I will lay my life down and rise to a newness of life. But the life I now live in this body, I live by a different fuel source. Because this life has been now invaded by the living God. And I live by his strength and his grace alone. Israel. You guys ever heard of Israel? I know it's the name of a nation. It's also the name of a person. Strangely, if you don't know the biblical account, it's not just the name of any person. It's the new name for Jacob. Jacob was given the name Israel. This is profound. You see, God wants you to grow up to be Israel. He wants to shape you and fashion you into Israel. And yet, what are you grabbing right now? Just look at your spiritual hand. There's the flesh, Esau. I could just get what he has. It doesn't work that way. So, in Christian history, this is called the dark night of the soul. Jacob has come to his end. I don't have it. You know, guess who's waiting for him the next day to crush him? Esau. Esau has vowed vengeance on him since he stole his birthright and he stole his blessing. Jacob's been running and hiding for 20 years. Guess who's waiting for him? Uh huh. He has no hope. The call to the land of promise this is the same call you have. You know what God says? And the Lord said unto Jacob, and let me unpack his name once again. And the Lord said unto the one who takes hold of the heel, a supplanter, a deceiver, a layer of snares. So he's talking to you. He's talking to me. And he says, return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. He calls you to the land of promise. He says, come to the land flown with milk and honey. And so what does Jacob do, just like us? He sets out. He sets out to find this land flowing with milk and honey. There's a problem. Esau stands in the way. Who stands in the way of you progressing? Uh-huh, your flesh. What is the number one voice that has counseled you from being here this morning sitting in that seat? Uh-huh, it's the flesh. Looks at Eric Looney and calls him a loony. Eric Looney. You don't want that. That's craziness. It's extreme. Is it? You see, there's something in you that is crying out for return to something deeper. You want the real thing. And yet it's a battle. And there is a nemesis within you to forward progression. Esau, the firstborn, that which you've always been holding on to and attempting to find that satisfaction, to find that depth of intimacy with Jesus Christ. But there's a hindrance, there's a battle, there's a war. Flesh, spirit. And now here you are, the dark night of the soul. You've come to your end and you're sick of it sick of it. I can't keep on living like this. Either God's real or he's not. Someone just break it to me. If this is all a fable, I just want to know. But if he is real, if he is real, I'll give everything to him. I'm either all out or all Dark night of the soul. 
You know what most of you are dealing with, just even as you come to Ellerslie? Dark night of the soul. You're sick and tired of playing games. You're sick and tired of trying to act like a Christian. Either you can be or you can't. Someone please just break it to me. Either this is a joke or it's real. I remember Oswald Chambers standing up and saying, I need something more. And his college professor said, thank you, Oswald, for being an example that other people should stand up. But we know that Oswald doesn't really need this. And he said, no, no, I don't have it. He said, either this whole thing is a sham or I'm holding the wrong end of the stick. Because I don't have the real thing. You know what? Most of us could probably identify with that. The world back home, your church back home pats you on the back and says, go off and be an example to all those Ellerslie students. And you're limping over here going, I don't think I can be an example to anything. I don't have it. You esteem it, but you don't have it. Welcome to the dark night of the soul. Something's missing. Something's wrong. And it's okay to admit it. Jacob didn't have what he needed to fight Esau the next day. Esau's waiting, and that the, the night grows dim, the darkness covers the sky. Esau, or Jacob has broken up his party into two different groups. He has women, children, and cattle to stand up against Esau. That's it. How's he going to fare? Every single one of us knows he's going to lose. How about you? I think we can predict the outcome of your next battle with the flesh. You're going to lose. That's been the statement of your entire life up to this point. Why is it going to change? You've been grabbing the heel your entire life, and it hasn't served you well. It's time for a change. It's time for the dark night of the soul. I don't want you to fear the dark night of the soul. I want you to go boldly into it. But we are covered in the river sticks as we approach this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The making of Israel. And the man of God said, let me go, for the day breaks. Well, let me give you a little background. I skipped a huge chunk here in the story. Jacob is all by his lonesome. And it says that there was a man of God that wrestled with him through the night. Okay, this is the dark night. And what does Jacob for the first time grab a hold of? For the first time in his life, he turns away from focusing on Esau. He turns away from trying to make things work. And what does he do? He meets God in the dark night. He grabs a hold of him. And what does he do? He won't let go. Let me go, says the man of God, for the day breaks. Which, by the way, this is God. Let me go, for the day breaks. And Jacob said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. I've been looking for something my whole life. And I've found it. I know you're the source of it. And I will not let go. You grab a hold of that cross today. And don't let go. I don't care if it has splinters going into your hand. Do not let go. You have tried to find it elsewhere, and I'm telling you, you found it when you come to the cross. That is the lone source of hope for you. Grab a hold of it. Let its splinters go through you if necessary, but don't let go. When everything goes dark, hold on. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. 
And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, I'm a heel grabber. I'm a supplanter, a deceiver, a layer of snares. I'm Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. You grab a hold of God and you get a new name. You grab a hold of God and suddenly life works. And some of you can say, I've been grabbing a hold of God my entire life. No, your hand is on the heel. Your hand is on your ability. Your confidence has been in your grit and determination to pull this out. People have always patted you on the back and said, you have a resolution. You have a desire. You're a good Christian. You are such a moral example to our community. And you've believed it. You've had confidence in you. And until you finally lose that, until you finally are broken to the point where you know Esau stands waiting to crush you in the morning, and you have no resource to stand against him, you can't do it. You're not ready to grab a hold of God. God will bring you to your end. He will bring you to this place. It's called Peniel, the face of God. You've been staring at the face of man. It's time to turn and face God squarely and say, you're the only source of hope. I don't have it. At Ellerslie, we say it simply, I can't. But you can. I can't live out this high calling. This is impossible. God nods. I can't do it. But you can. Grab a hold of your God and don't let go. The great work of the cross. The Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. That statement should make a whole lot more sense to you than if you just happen to stumble across it in the Bible. Look at it. You're Jacob, aren't you? You see, you're probably not Esau. Esau spurns the inheritance. He doesn't even want it. But you want it. But you just have been stumbling around grabbing heels your entire life. What does God do? He redeems you. And then what does he do when he turns you face to face with him and you grab a hold of Almighty God, and you won't let go. You get a new name. He says, and glorified himself in Israel. You see, he needs a vessel fit to demonstrate the power, the glory, the majesty of Almighty God. But what does he need to do? He needs to get you to the cross. He needs you to get away from all that junk you've been leaning on, to finally, squarely find your salvation in him. Where suddenly, if anyone asks you what your life is about, you say, it's about Jesus. Well, yeah, I know, but what is it really about? Like, tell me more about your life, Jesus. Cut me into a thousand pieces, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Is that it? Yes. That's what makes me tick. That's what makes me breathe. That's what moves me. All I care about is him. Now, if you don't like Jesus, you're going to be miserable this semester. <laughs> that's all we care about around here. Every message focuses on Jesus. It lifts high Jesus, unpacks Jesus, acquaints us with more of Jesus, moves us to proclaim the profound and beautiful and almighty majestic name of Jesus. The redemption of the heel grabber. The Lord hath redeemed Jacob. Redemption, it means the repurchase of captured goods or prisoners. This is from the 1828 dictionary in dedication to Philip Hartman. The act of procuring the deliverance of persons or things from the possession and power of captors by the payment of an equivalent. 
you've been rescued. You, Jacob, have been rescued. You know, I love the name Jacob. I wouldn't be against naming one of my boys Jacob because of what it symbolizes. However, I want them to grow up to be in Israel. But Jacob is bent to go in that direction. He's being set up for the dark night of the soul. So if your name's Jacob, you know where your end is. It's to be made into Israel. You know, every single one of us, that's exactly what we are. We are named Jacob. But God wants to grow us up to be Israel. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Where do you find redemption? Where do you find the equivalent payment? You're a captive. How are you going to get out? Where does the equivalent payment come from? You better know the answer to that. It's not going to come by you attempting to pay it. You drumming up your ability. You go into the flesh and taxing it. You conniving and laying a snare for the flesh's feet so that you could gain his dollars and cents from his pocket. Can't pay it. It's an unpayable debt. You were redeemed not by the flesh. You were redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In whom? In what river? In the river Styx? No, in Jesus. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. For I know that my Redeemer liveth. I love that line. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand the latter day upon the earth. Do you know that? Where does your redemption come from? Where is the price paid for you? It's at the cross. Stare at the cross. Don't keep looking at the heel. Don't keep staring at that birthright and that blessing of Isaac. Jesus is what that blessing was. That birthright was Jesus. That blessing of Isaac was Jesus. Jesus is what you're after. Grab a hold of him. The hope of glory. The Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Who's he going to glorify himself in? Those that have grabbed a hold of God and won't let go. That's who it is. It's Israel. You know, that's what the name means. It means one who has grabbed a hold and overcome. One who has grabbed a hold of the true source of life and refused to let go. That's the name of all the true children of God throughout the ages. Do you want to be grafted into Israel? Well, then you better bear the behavior of Israel. That's what he does. He says, I have one source of salvation, one source of hope, and I'm grabbing a hold of it, and I will not let go. And say, isn't that splintery? Oh, yeah. It's a delightful splinter. I will never let go of my God. Put off. You have something on you. It's called Adam. It's an old man. It's an old behavior. It's an old way of living. It's an old way of reasoning. And I'm going to make it very simple. Put off the old man. Put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Put off the old man with his deeds. You're supposed to shed it. You're supposed to let it go. Jump in a new river. It's called baptism. Put on. Put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on Christ. Put on the new man. Put on the whole armor of God. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the new man. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. You're supposed to put off something and put on something. Your confidence has always been in the wrong river. It's been in Esau. It's been in the flesh. You've had your little pile of good deeds and, and things that you believed and things you've attempted to do. And you've had confidence there. You've staked claim on that and said, I think this will do it. 
God's a merciful God, and he'll know I tried my best. No, it's the wrong river. Put it off. It's an old man. That cannot save you. God makes it very clear in Scripture. That cannot save you. There's only one thing that can. And he says, put it on. Jump in this river. This is the river you want to be dipped in. This is the one that truly secures you. This is the one that makes you impervious and unstoppable. It's Jesus. Grabbing a hold of grabbing God instead of the heel of self-effort. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Clothed in his work. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me. Just think of a river. He has garmented me. He has covered me. He has surrounded me. I'm immersed in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Transformed waste. Recycling. Now, I'm not a guy who talks about recycling very much, so this is quite a moment in Ellerslie history. I'm not against recycling, by the way, okay? There's, I don't see anything wrong with recycling. I don't just worship the ground it walks on, okay? Recycling is processing waste into new products. Profound, isn't it? Okay, I'm not teaching you anything new. That's just what it is. Now, you'll notice there's a world in the center of that, and that's the way most of us are. We're attempting to recycle our life to take what was wrong and somehow make it beneficial and pleasing unto God. We're trying to make a new product. But you can't do it. You can't recycle the junk of men's behavior into anything that would please God. You'll notice this. There's a little green thing, a little recycling symbol with a cross in the middle. See, it's sort of strange to say this, but Jesus recycles. I know, there is somewhat, some green people are really going to grab a hold of that one. Spiritual recycling is processing wasted lives into new people. Recyclable materials, if you look it up, it's going to say include many kinds of glass, paper, metal, plastic, textiles, and electronics. Those are recyclable. Look at God's spiritually recyclable materials. Include dumb moves, idiotic maneuvers, boneheaded behaviors, and otherwise self-centered fleshly acts of ridiculousness. We have a lot of junk. And you could come here with a weight hanging over your shoulders saying, I don't fit here. Everyone here is looking good and pretty. Maybe on the outside. It's time that we get changed on the inside. And allow God to take us and make us new. The throne of heaven, the bar of righteousness, the presence of Almighty God is unapproachable. You will be obliterated in the consuming fire of God if you dare attempt to step into his presence without merit. What's your merit? Which means your worthiness or your payment or your ticket. What's your ticket? You see, if you pile up a whole bunch of things, stick them in your pocket and have your great argument, your legal remonstrance, your legal presentation when you get to the throne of God. And you're like, okay, when he asks me that question, I'm going to go through my whole list of all the great things I did. And if my good things can somehow just outweigh some of those really dumb things that I did, then maybe God will say, you know what, you're a pretty good guy. And I'm looking for pretty good guys. You know that God will send pretty good guys to hell? Whoa! You know how uh, mean that sounds? 
You know, it's like God wouldn't do that. He's love. Uh-huh. His cross is the evidence of his love. You see, Jesus has made a way. He has. He's done everything we need for us to be able to access this unapproachable presence. What did he do? You see, you must have righteousness. You must be, you know what righteousness is? The way you ought to be. You must be the way you ought to be. You must be perfect as he is perfect. You must be holy as he is holy. When someone strikes you on one cheek, you turn to them the other also. How you doing? You see, even one flaw in the mechanics throughout your entire existence, one moment of self-exertion, one moment of putting yourself before the living God and claiming the throne that belongs to him is enough to forever separate you. How are you doing? What do you think you can work up to pay this off, to correct the problem? Because even if you pay your penalty, you still haven't corrected the problem. You are at the center of your life. You're trying to do it. You're trying to please God, and you cannot do it. Bad news. And Jesus Christ, knowing your bad news, loved you. And he came and gave up his life. He humbled himself and took on the position of a servant and was obedient. And obedient even unto the point of death, and not just any death, but the humiliating death of the cross. Why? To give you a means of entry. And what he's done is he's opened up his life. We could call it the robe of righteousness. The cloak. The covering. The river. He's made a way and he says, get in. Get inside. And when you come into that presence, do you have anything to bring? No. He does. You must be in him. And when you come and approach that throne... What does the Father allow in? He allows in perfect righteousness. Is that you? No. It's him. Where's your confidence? Is it in your righteousness? Your good deeds? It's in his! You have confidence in him. By what means do you enter his presence? By the means of Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness that I plead. I don't have the merit, almighty God. But your son does. And I lean all my weight and trust and confidence that it's enough for me. His work is sufficient for me. Little, old, pitifully behaved, wretched Eric Ludi is saved by nothing but the blood of Jesus. God transforms heel grammars. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In order to bring it about in this day to save many people alive. That's Joseph. He was sold into slavery. You know that you might have tripped up and bungled this whole thing called Christianity so far? You know, and the enemy could have been playing upon you and attempting to snuff out the life that was forming. However, guess what? You somehow slipped through the cracks. And you ended up in a dark night. And you're being awakened to the face of God. And you're suddenly reaching out and saying... God, I'm not exactly sure how to do this, but I'm going to start holding. I'm going to start grabbing on. And guess what? All that the enemy has meant for evil, all of it, put it up in a pile, and I want you to realize every single last bit of it is going to be transformed into good in God's kingdom. Everything, every trip up, every mistake, if you turn it over to God and you grab a hold of him, do you know that he'll immolate that into his picture of glory? He will. 
I know it's extremely weird how he could pull that off. He does. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is our finish. We're going to stop with this today. Remember Jericho. It could be sort of a rallying cry. Okay, let's ask a few questions. Jericho. Good place, bad place? Bad. Okay, it's fallen under the judgment of God. Okay, bad place. Okay? It's ruled by bad ideas, bad people. Big meanies is what we call them in our home. Big meanie ideas rule the roost in Jericho. The wrath of God is ready to be poured out upon it. Okay? Who is this? This is us. Not just the world out there. Oh, that poor world. That's us. The wrath of God is set to be poured out on all unrighteousness. And we just fit the bill perfectly. Okay? Jericho. Remember Jericho. Jericho is going to be judged. And what's amazing about it is it was judged. But that judgment, there's something in Jericho. In all its destitution. In all its misery. In all its wretchedness. Did you know that God took something out of Jericho and built his holy temple? You know that God took the gold, the silver, and there was another uh, metallic that was there. He took it out and he said, "Uh, that belongs to me. And he took out of Jericho the gold and built his temple. I want you to just remember this. You're no better than Jericho. And yet God wants to redeem you. And when he does, he takes what typically would just be considered a pile of rubble, your life. And he says, you know what? I want to take this and I want to build a picture of my glory in and through it. The very place that I will dwell. Hmm, what a great idea. And he builds you, Israel. You see, we all have a Jacob propensity. But you don't need to spend 20 years as Jacob. Some of us in here are saying, 40 already. You don't need to spend another day. You see, God wants to take you to the dark night tonight. He's not just wanting to drag this out. He's ready to change you. The question is, are you ready to be changed? Or do you still want to put your confidence in the pile of you, in what you have accomplished? For most of us here, if you're coming to Ellerslie, you're pretty sick and tired of what you've accomplished. You're not impressed with you. And I don't blame you. You see, I'm not a guy who's just going to stroke you and compliment you and say, wow, you're, you're impressive without God. There's nothing about you that's impressive without God. You're just like every other thing out there. The only thing that should impress us as Christians is Jesus. And when we see Jesus shining in and through another Christian boy, we're impressed. And we love to see it. That's our great movement. We love the lost and we love those that don't shine forth Jesus. But we don't pat them on the back and say, well done. We look at the cross and we say, well done, Jesus. Well done. And anyone who wants to find true life needs to behold that great work. And we need to esteem it. With all the esteem that could possibly be in us, we say, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The one who did the work. It's not your work. It's his work. And then when you finally get a hold of his work, you know what happens? You start to work. 
but your work then suddenly works. I know that's a whole bunch of work in one sentence. It's confusing and it's sometimes hard to understand, but by the end of nine weeks, you'll understand it. You'll understand how the work of God works. God did the work to save you from your rotten work so that you could be his workplace. And in and through your life, he could do works. That's how he does it. But you can't do those works unless you first behold his work. All right? Remember Jericho, because that's you. Remember Jacob, because that's us. There's something that God wants to get out of you. It's not all loss. But let him burn. Turn it to rubble. Everything that has stood against him up to this point. Everything that is self-gloried. Everything that is attempted in its own machination and discipline and willpower. Let it all be turned to rubble. Let it fall at the feet of Jesus and let him grab the gold out. And say, I can use this. I'm going to turn you into the house of God. It's quite extraordinary. It is. It's called the gospel. All right? So let's bask in it over these nine weeks. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.